1: Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor.
0: And I'm Marcel Cosman. And just when you thought we were done changing up the format, we're changing it up again. We just really love a new segment, you know?
1: At the end of our discussion of every book, we're going to be doing a wrap-up episode discussing the book as a whole. And hitting on those things that didn't quite fit into any of the other episodes. But before we introduce our special brand new wrap-up segments, let's start off with something a little bit more familiar. The sorting chat.
0: Ah, oh, I love it. Hannah, let's talk about what we did for Canadian Halloween. <laughs>
1: So the reason why it says what we did for Canadian Halloween in the script notes is because as we were discussing what we were going to touch on in the sorting chat, Marcel said we should talk about what we did on Halloween, and our delightful producer asked if Canadians have a different Halloween like we do a different Thanksgiving, which is my favorite idea in the entire world. But alas, we don't. We are in fact recording before Halloween. It's just that... We're actually going to release this episode after. So we're just going to preemptively tell you all how our Halloweens went. It's great. It's great.
0: So in these pandemic times, trick-or-treating is discouraged, (laughs) at least in the city of Edmonton, where we are at our highest case level of... COVID-19 historically, who could have imagined that opening up bars and restaurants would like cause a second wave? Certainly not me. Anyway, so this year will be the first year since Elliot was born that we do not go trick-or-treating. And I... Personally, I'm not interested in giving out candy.
1: The intensity of the panic attack I would experience if during this pandemic, a bunch of strangers started showing up at my front door, (laughs) ringing my doorbell, putting their grubby plague-ridden hands out to receive candy.
0: You know who notoriously has like A plus hygiene? Children.
1: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. The cleanest (laughs) of all humans. So this won't be a change for me because I am a childless spinster who lives in a condo building. I haven't seen a real child in 15 years. Uh, I've certainly never handed one candy. Um, Why would I do that unless I was trying to lure them into my gingerbread house in the woods? I can't think of a good reason. So... I'll probably spend Halloween the way I always spend Halloween, which is watching, you know, Hocus Pocus or Nightmare Before Christmas and eating as much candy as I can fit into my mouth by the fistful. Just think,
0: Hannah, about the structural integrity of the house you could build with that candy mm. instead of eating it. You know, you could use it as like bricks and mortar to those Tootsie Rolls and then spread them out across your rockets.
1: <laughs> now I'm just picturing making a wet, spit-filled candy house and just leaving it <laughs> sitting on my home. What What a truly nightmarish proposition. We're concluding our analysis of book one in true comedic form. With a wedding. Hooray! For this episode, we have something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue. We also have questions going forward, as all newlyweds should. First up, something old. By popular request, it's Granger Danger. So, Marcel, I would like to have a conversation about Hermione Granger, a character who we haven't really talked about that much in our discussion of this book so far. It's true. She's a she's a bit of a wild card for us. This time around. She is indeed. And I think there's an interesting reason why you and I have historically struggled with Hermione in this book. And it's because in this book, for the majority of the text, she is either absent or deeply annoying. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And you and I have tended to read the degree to which Hermione is annoying as a sign of hmm Harry's unreliability as a narrator combined with his internalized misogyny in reaction to girls who talk a lot and this is sort of a point I've seen brought up in the fandom here and there what I'm wondering is is if we do Hermione not you and I in particular but readers in general if we do Hermione a disservice by wanting her to be perfect all the time By placing so much of a burden of being, like, the girl on her that we need her to be the best at everything. A hero constantly. uh, Somebody who is always on, you know, the right side of history. And if there are these moments in the text where she is, like, not great, we sort of figure out an excuse (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to be to be like, no, no, it's the book that is wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah, I hear that. I do think that Hermione is for a lot of girl and women identified readers. I think Hermione is a really relatable figure because I think that a lot of us have been called bossy or made to feel annoying because we have opinions and where we do a lot of extra emotional labor for the boy and men identified people in our lives. And I think that Hermione as a character is at her most relatable, at least for me, when she is a flawed character. And so I don't necessarily want to make up excuses for her But I do also want to see her grow and change. And if we can't talk about the ways in which the representations of her are complex and unreliable, then we also can't really talk about the ways that she grows and changes. And yeah, so that's my feeling about that. What do you think, Hannah?
1: I love that a lot. I I think you and I have both spent some time with that first scene where we meet Hermione on the train and she is she comes in real hot to that initial interaction (laughs) yeah (laughs) she has not come here to make friends she has come here to win (laughs) is the vibe we get from 11 year old Hermione and we have talked about how you can unpack that as being related to the anxiety of being a muggle born entering into Mm -hmm. this environment for the first time the different ways in which we can see children react to this deep unfamiliarity to just be placed unsupervised on a train at 11 years old (laughs) and sent (laughs) into the wilderness (laughs) To undergo a series of tasks that nobody at any point has explained to you (laughs) with any detail. And that's the case for, like, the wizard-born children. So, like, how much worse and scarier is that for the muggle-borns, who just have no sense of context? And uh, at the same time, as I was rereading this time around that first encounter, where Hermione comes in and is like, "Mm, show me some magic. (laughs) pretty bad um <laughs> a bit much but like <laughs> is she more obnoxious than Fred and George yeah. in that first scene where yeah. they're like all right show us your scar cool we're out yeah right like lots of people are coming in pretty hot to a lot of different interactions but she's the one who is labeled like unbearable bossy girl mhm right mm-hmm. and and i yeah. do also very powerfully relate to this like Mm -hmm. I am myself a irredeemable Hermione (laughs) in the sense of my profound ingrained bossiness like my nickname in Edmonton with our friends was (laughs) Dr. Mom Boss yeah I'm so (laughs) fucking bossy (laughs) the <laughs> people just had to be like, "Hey Hannah, for 30 seconds, could you stop maybe trying to manage every situation?" <laughs> I was like, "Fine, but you're <laughs> going to do it wrong." <laughs> And that is the thing I still, I work so hard on being somebody who like, lets go of the desire to be in control, Mm -hmm. asks for help more, has more trust in other people. It is a challenge for me because Mm -hmm. my response to stress is always to be like, I'll just control it. Mm -hmm. Don't worry, everybody. It's fine. I'll pack a tiny magical purse full of tents and changes of clothes. Everybody's going to be okay. And you know that if you
0: don't pack your tiny purse, your ding dong friends aren't going to have any clothes to wear because they're not going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I have such clear and anxiety inducing memories of being in high school and knowing that if I didn't go to school on that day because I was sick, that that group project that I was working on wasn't going to get done even though there were four other people in the group. And you know what happened 100% of the time when I was sick and I had some kind of group responsibility? Guess what? Can you guess? Didn't get done? No, it never got done. Not once, not ever. Okay, also, so I just want to throw in there that a mutual friend of ours referred to me as being a Brita type from community. And you know what? This friend wasn't wrong. I absolutely historically have been a Britta type, and Britta is a Hermione type. These are the same type. They are, I would say, white women with strong opinions who need to do some learning, but also know things. (laughs) So, you know, it's complicated. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it is complicated and and a conversation I'd like us to return to as the series progresses and as we get more Hermione is particularly this question of reading Hermione as a white feminist versus reading Hermione as a woman of color because I know for a lot of readers and for a lot of fans, they read Hermione as a woman of color or they read Hermione as black and I think how we are reading Hermione informs how we think about her bossiness about her her later sometimes mishandled political allegiances you know I, th- I think that there's going to be some interesting stuff to keep unpacking as we uh, as we return to this beloved but sometimes fraught character <laughs> just like our own youths you know <laughs> Oh, oh, if we can if we can read Hermione with the tenderness and gentleness that we would like to treat our own childhood selves, that would be that would be good.
0: Great. Let's let's do that. Next up, it's something new, a brand new segment dedicated to Hannah's ongoing obsession if you will with the question of what exactly the wizarding world is wearing welcome to the luke book (laughs) the luke luke book luke book (laughs) fun fact the word lux comes from latin and its archaic form is lux. <laughs> Less fun fact though, lux refers to the measurement of light and not to be confused with lux, as in fancy shit, which is a confusion that I experienced when coming up with the title for this
1: segment. <laughs> so, there's two things I want to talk about in this segment. First thing, Mm -hmm. I would like to briefly introduce new listeners to my personal textual crusade (laughs) to find all available evidence to support the fact that the wizards at Hogwarts are not wearing trousers under their robes, despite how their uniforms are represented in the movies. Mm -hmm. I have found two additional vital pieces of evidence (laughs) to support my hypothesis. One is the scene where Harry goes to get fitted for his ropes, Mm -hmm. and Madame Malkin slips a long robe over his head and begins to pin it to the right length. If it was a robe that opened at the front that you wore over a school Mm. uniform as it's represented in the movies then it would have put it on like a jacket you don't put something over somebody's head unless it is a single garment without an opening so i I see i see this mm -hmm. is compelling yes yeah second piece of evidence when harry stumbles across snape and filch bandaging up snape's injured leg he sees snape holding his robes above his knees and one of his legs is bloody and mangled there's no trouser there's no trouser there he's holding his robes above his knees and you can see his legs There's no trousers under those robes.
0: I really, truly feel discomforted by the idea of Snape's, like, naked legs.
1: As you should.
0: I don't know why. I don't know why it's specifically Snape, but there's something about the idea of him holding his robes over his knees where, like, if I were Snape and Harry stumbled across me in such a compromising position, I would be like, get away. Get away. 50, 50 points from Gryffindor. He
1: is. He's so mad. Yeah, rightly so. This is naked leg. It's it's a vulnerable experience. However, <sighs> more than dedicating this entire segment to uh, hashtag Ropegate, which is obviously something I'll never ever let go. You will pry it from my cold dead hands. I actually would like to talk about the aesthetics of the wizarding world and the way in which wizards are described as these kinds of like aberrant figures due to the way in which they are dressed. Because the most description that we have of the way that wizards dress is in the first chapter when Vernon Dursley starts encountering wizards who are sort of emerging more than they usually would because Voldemort has been defeated and people are out on the street celebrating. And the way that he marks them as being, you know, other, one, they are wearing cloaks. How dare they? But two, and even more interestingly to me, is that they are men dressed in colorful clothing. Mm. One of them is described as being dressed in a bright green cloak. Mm -hmm. One of them is wearing a violet cloak. And he is freaked out Mm -hmm. by the presence of men wearing colors. Mm -hmm. And so I began to think about a iconic figure in the history of men's fashion, Beau Brummel. Marcel, are you familiar with the figure of Beau Brummel. I
0: am not. Please tell me.
1: What is important about Beau Brummel is that he transformed the landscape of men's fashion in a way that has continued to haunt us up to the present day.
0: Ooh, haunting.
1: Right? So Beau Brummel was a Regency-era dandy, and he intervened very forcefully in what was fashionable at the time for men to wear. He was an interesting historical figure. His family was a sort of aspirational, upwardly mobile middle class family. He went to Eton and then Oxford. And so he was a sort of middle class man uh, in an environment surrounded by the aristocracy. So there's obviously some sort of desire to appear a particular way or to fit in in a particular way. And Beau Brummel's whole take on fashion was that everybody should dress the same. And that what made you fashionable was not standing out, that your fashion should be impeccable, but also impeccable in an unremarkable way, like so perfect that no flaw can be found with it, but in no way ostentatious. So he intervened into a fashion landscape in which men wore bright colors Textures, fabrics, lace, ruffles, high heels, brocade, velvet, violet, emerald. And instead, he said, men should wear simple clothes, tailored, black and gray only, trousers, suits, white button downs, end of story. And that is how men should dress. And if you dress in any other way, you will be mocked ruthlessly. And he was like a bully. Like okay. he made sure that like anybody, any anybody who was fashionable, who wasn't dressing the way he said you should dress was, you know, torn apart in the newspapers. He sounds like a British Patrick Bateman. He's absolutely a British Patrick Bateman. And okay. He's a real piece of trash. Okay. Uh, there is a wonderful article in Esquire by Alexandra Rowland about Beau Brummel, who she repeatedly refers to by names such as Beau. why didn't anyone slap him, Brummel? <laughs> 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 really? Oh, I or love that. bow actual dickhead, Brummel. <laughs> She's really not a fan. But what she argues in the article is that essentially he's sort of rooted this conservative approach to men's fashion in a sort of toxic masculinity mentality mm. that was like men are not allowed to take pleasure in what they wear and mm. you will be mocked if you do and that that has continued to be the norm for how, for menswear for the last 200 years. Mm-hmm. And because it started in London, it made its way out into the rest of the colonized world mm-hmm. and has continued to restrict, you know, when you see a man in the public eye, how is he expected to dress? Mm-hmm. Essentially the same way this guy dressed 200 years ago. Like it's mm-hmm. it's barely changed. And so the reason why I have been thinking about Beau Brummel <laughs> is that, one... There has, in recent years, been uh, an exciting pushback against this aesthetic Mm -hmm. and a return to foppishness Mm -hmm. amongst male public figures. I think you could look to Billy Porter or Harry Styles as examples of the return of the fop Mm -hmm. and the way that that figure is a sort of challenge to toxic masculinity and and the way that it's expressed via fashion. Mm -hmm. But also, I love to imagine... That Beau Brummel, being a muggle, just had zero impact on wizard fashion. Mm. So the (laughs) fop just never went away for wizards. (laughs) At no point was there an intervention into their culture where somebody said men can't wear color, men can't wear lace, men can't wear heels, men can't wear velvet. And so in the wizarding world, men just dress how they want. (laughs) And we see them in bright colors and top hats and ruffs and like just, Mm -hmm. you know, they just dress in these amazing, luxurious ways. That for somebody like Vernon Dursley Mm -hmm. are deeply upsetting.
0: (laughs) I don't know why this is what's coming to mind. Maybe it's just the small town Canadian girl in me. But I wonder what Vernon Dursley would have made of Don Cherry. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Oh, what a great question. Uh, Don Cherry, for those of you unfamiliar, (laughs) is a iconic Canadian sports commentator. Um, He's a hateful racist man, Mm -hmm. but he is also known for his extremely flashy style of dress.
0: Yeah, yeah. And he wears like triple breasted suits, but they tend to be entirely covered in sequins and rhinestones it's yeah baffling and he also like he's a hateful racist he is homophobic he is misogynist he's just a, a terrible terrible person and yet he dresses like a human disco ball it's <laughs>
1: it's incredible <laughs> truly a riddle truly so that's what i've got for the uh this episode's Liek Beak. But uh, I'm really excited to keep, one, finding extensive <laughs> evidence for Ropegate, but two, continuing to notice some um, the various luxuriant fabrics in which wizards dress.
0: This is great. I can't, I can't wait to learn more.
1: This third segment is something borrowed. Specifically borrowed from fellow Not Sorry Productions podcast, Twilight in Quarantine, where they like to talk about, you know, something cool they've noticed in every episode. This segment is called Orchidius, mm-hmm. and I don't know why, so I'll <laughs> let Marcel explain.
0: <laughs> okay, all right. So, Orchidius is the spell that Ollivander uses to test someone's wand in book four, I Can't remember whose. And I thought it was a good title because the spell makes a bouquet of flowers burst out of the end of your wand, which is super cool. And also, it's a spell that I never noticed until Google searching, quote, random Harry Potter spells, unquote, uh, trying to find a title for this segment. So I think this is a good name for the segment where we touch on cool, lovely things we noticed the first time around in this reading.
1: Yes. So this was a challenge for this particular book, because book one is short. And after having done five episodes on it, there weren't a ton of details I hadn't noticed. But there were a couple of things that stood out to me as I was revisiting this book for the final time in my life. (laughs) And... One of those things is just, it's a passing reference. It's the chapter about winter arriving. And, you know, there's feet of snow on the Hogwarts grounds and there's storms raging around the castle. And just in passing, it mentions the fact that any owls that manage to make their way through the storm have to be nursed back to health by Hagrid before they can be sent out again. And I assume that he brings them to his cottage and that, you know, in the winter you make your way across the snowy grounds and you come into Haggard's cottage and it's warm in there and it always smells a little bit like wet dog <laughs> and there's a fire burning. And then there's just some like a few owls just sort of Sitting on various pieces of furniture, maybe with a bandage wrapped around their wing. (laughs) Just slowly being nursed back to health by this tender giant whose hand is the size of all of them. Mm -hmm. And that made me, as I was reading back through and then just trying to pay closer attention to Hagrid, I was thinking about all the moments when we see him do things like, for example, physically carrying the Christmas trees into Mm -hmm. the Great Hall for their Christmas celebration. We see him doing these things physically, manually, that could be accomplished with magic, that could easily be done by any one of the professors at the school. And I like to think that Hagrid takes pleasure in these kinds of activities because he loves Hogwarts so much Mm -hmm. and he loves, he loves to carry a tree into the great hall, right? He loves to be the one who is responsible for bringing the Christmas trees into the great hall that the labor we see Hagrid engaging in is labor that is motivated by his love and care for this place that is his home. And that has been his home for his entire adult life. But I love him is what I'm saying. I think that's really beautiful, Hannah. I love the kind of
0: tender focus on Hagrid, who I think, you know, he's not he's not a a perfect character, but he provides for us so many delightful,
1: unexpected turns. Yeah, he's just full of care. Like, I mean, and we come back to this all the time, but like the fact that when he goes to find Harry, he brings a birthday cake. Mm -hmm. Like, It's beautiful. It is beautiful that he took the time to make a birthday cake. He didn't even buy it; he made it. (laughs) It's probably bad. I think he's bad at baking. Yeah, he's he's a lovely man. Lovely, it's lovely. Um, tell me about a thing you noticed this time.
0: Okay, so like you, I did feel on this read that I had read it so many times recently that I noticed everything already but you know what that's just that's just not true every time I read a thing that I've read before I notice something new this time I really got hung up on wand adjectives (laughs) (laughs) they're so silly they're so silly and they're so specific and as I was reading this time around Ollivander, when he meets Harry, remembers his mother's wand. Lily's wand is described as swishy. (laughs) When he says hello to Hagrid, he remembers Hagrid's wand as being bendy. (laughs) One of the wands that rejects Harry when Harry is testing Mm -hmm. out the wands is Mm whippy. Whippy. (laughs) Whippy. Whippy. (laughs) Whippy. Another one of the rejects is springy. (laughs) The wand that Harry does end up getting is supple. And then there's also James's wand, which Ollivander recalls as being pliable. I don't know what it is about these adjectives it might be the fact that they're all different like it's not that there's just like a line of whippy wands it's that every single one of them is different and and Hannah you pointed out when we were talking at the beginning of this of this episode you were like I don't know what the difference is the difference
1: between bendy and springy I don't know I don't know what it means for one wand to be supple and another wand to be whippy. Like, what even is a supple wand? Like what does supple mean? Well, surely what we are what we are talking about is like the degree of of give that uh-huh. these various woods have, right? Like they're different <laughs> yeah. kinds of wood, mm-hmm. and some wood is quite rigid. And so if mm-hmm. you tried to bend that wand, it would snap quite mm-hmm. easily and some wood is more supple. Mm-hmm. so you could bend it more. But Mm -hmm. that's just two things. That's only two things, yeah. That's just two things. It's unyielding or it's yielding. But instead it's like, is it springy? Is it whippy? Is it supple? Is it bendy? Is it springy? Is it whippy? Is it supple? Is it swishy? (laughs) Somebody could remix that as a cool song. That would be great. (laughs) I would really appreciate that. Woo! I would like to point out Mm -hmm. that in book seven, Mm -hmm. When Ollivander shows up again Mm -hmm. and is describing wands again, Mm -hmm. he uses the same language. He Mm -hmm. calls Harry's wand nice and supple. Oh yeah, I hate it. Incredible. Yeah, it's weird. (laughs) It's so (laughs) so weird. Oh, Oh, I speaking. Speaking of uh, how how bendy or breaky wands are, <laughs> spoiler alert, the part where um, Harry's wand has been broken. And he shows it to Olivander and asks, can you fix it? And Olivander says no. And it becomes very clear throughout the series that like a wand once broken cannot be used. Like it just can't do magic anymore. Except Hagrid's wand was snapped in half. And Ollivander says, when he's like, you don't use it anymore, do you? Hagrid's like, absolutely not. And then like, (laughs) clutches his pink umbrella closer to him. Not only is Hagrid still 100% using this wand, Mm -hmm. but it works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is incredible, right? It should do terrible, chaotic, broken things when he tries to use it. Mm -hmm. But it works perfectly Mm -hmm. every time we see him use it. Perhaps its functionality is limited. Mm -hmm. Perhaps he can only work simpler charms and not more complex magic. But the fact that Hagrid has a broken wand that he can still 100% (laughs) use suggests to me that Hagrid might be secretly... The most powerful wizard in the world.
0: (laughs) I have a possible alternative explanation.
1: Less outrageous, maybe?
0: Uh, Yeah, probably less outrageous, maybe more boring. (laughs) Certainly less whimsical. I'll try to make it whimsical. So a possibility is that when Hagrid tells Harry that they need to go and get his wand, he says, we've got to go to Ollivander's because you need to have the best wand. We know of at least one other wand maker, right? Grigorovich, who we'll learn about later, but he exists in the world. So there are other wand makers. So my theory is that Hagrid's wand, which was snapped in two and of which he has both pieces, is not the wand that's in his pink umbrella. My alternate theory is that he got himself a like back alley wand from some like hackneyed Discredited wand maker.
1: He found it in the Lost and Found
0: at Hogwarts, and he just right into his
1: umbrella. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Oh, I like that too. Yeah, and so then when Ollivander is like, "You don't still use it, do you?" And Hagrid like hides his pink umbrella. He's not hiding the two pieces of his broken wand. He's hiding a wand from a wand maker.
1: He just has a whole other one
0: he might even have like a whole
1: drawer full of
0: discarded or like lost wands from the grounds at hogwarts that he like (laughs) he just keeps them
1: oh my god i have so many more questions about like wand lore and wand magic and how it works but i think we should save it for later episodes i think that's a good idea i love that
0: finally we've got something blue it's time for devastating fun facts in which i by popular demand share some fun facts about hogwarts students and staff not mentioned in the books because these things were not part of harry's journey
1: all right. I'm oh, I'm I'm ready. The last time you listed some of these facts, they made me cry. So I am braced.
0: Okay. Fun facts. Book one. Fun fact. Dumbledore used to smoke. And when he quit, he decided to turn his cigarette lighter into a quote unquote put outer, later called a deluminator, so that he would have a reason to keep it because he liked it.
1: That is fun. (laughs) Fun
0: fact. There is a time lag of at least 12 hours. I think it might even be like 16 to 20 between James and Lily Potter's deaths and when Hagrid delivers baby Harry to Privet Drive. It's a full day. What happened during those hours? Here's one thing. After Voldemort's curse rebounds and destroys a chunk of the house, neighbours can hear Harry crying from his crib. But without a dark mark over the house, no one knows that Voldemort has gone, and so no one goes near the house for quite some time after the explosion. Harry eventually soothes himself, and as he looks up into the night sky through the hole in his bedroom, he sings Twinkle Twinkle Little Star until he falls asleep. Fun fact! Mrs. Fig loves it when Harry visits and looks forward to Dudley's birthday for weeks knowing that she'll have company. When Harry was in grade two, Mrs. Fig asked Petunia for one of Harry's school pictures to put on her mantle, but Petunia scoffed at the idea that they would ever buy school pictures for Harry, and so Mrs. Fig never asked again. No, <laughs> oh, Mar- <laughs> <laughs> why are you doing this to me? Have I found my genre? <laughs> <He's> just literally <laughs> weeping. I've got more. Okay. Fun fact. The station guard, who is irritable with Harry at King's Cross, was having a really bad morning. Moments after Harry meets the Weasleys and crosses the barrier, the guard turns around and tries to find the small boy that he accused of wasting his time. When he can't, he assumes that someone else has played a joke on the child, and he hopes that whoever it was thinks twice before teasing that poor kid again.
1: (sighs) Okay, that one was comforting because I found it distressing on this reread how mean that guard was. Yeah. To a child. I
0: know. Like an 11-year-old child who's like...
1: An unsupervised child (laughs) alone in a train station.
0: (laughs) Yeah, with a trunk. Fun fact. Peeves the poltergeist is (laughs) right-handed. Checks out. Fun fact. The carpet covering the Slytherin common room is patterned with smiling cauldrons. (laughs) Fun fact. The Ravenclaw common room smells wonderfully of jasmine. Mm. Fun fact. The Hufflepuff common room smells wonderfully of lilacs. Fun fact. The Gryffindor common room smells a bit like singed hair, but after the Weasley twins peace out in book five, it will start to smell like beeswax again. (laughs) Okay, this is the last one. All right, I'm ready. Fun fact. Mrs. Norris was once a witch married to a wizard named Mr. Norris. She met and fell in love with Argus Filch and tried to divorce her jealous husband. Mr. Norris, a truly terrible man, cursed her by turning into the one thing Filch could not stand to be around, a cat. Because Filch is terribly allergic to cats, and Mr. Norris thought that this curse would keep them apart forever. Little did he understand, however, the power of their love, for Filch committed to being Mrs. Norris's life partner despite their difference in species, and his allergies to her dander. They have loved one another unconditionally since the moment they met. I hate this segment so much. Ah. I'm a cruel, cruel, cruel woman.
1: Before we close the literal book, On Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, we want to end with some questions and concerns we plan to keep in mind going forward. So this is just an opportunity for us to sort of mm, put pins in Mm -hmm. some things we'd (laughs) like to come back to or to keep thinking about. And one that unfolded both via email and via Twitter for me were some really interesting questions about the Weasleys and class. In response to the class episode, a number of people suggested, in part based on evidence from later books, that the Weasleys might actually, instead of being a sort of working class agrarian family, might instead be sort of shabby aristocracy, impoverished gentry, a sort of once proud and noble household that through the decisions that the current generation have made, including their political allegiances, you know, away from Voldemort and the Malfoys and these other sort of pureblood families that have accrued a lot of wealth, you know, has resulted in them sort of losing some of their wealth or their class status. And I think there's, you know, some interesting possible textual evidence we might find for this hypothesis going forward if we pay attention to it. And so I want to note that as a thing I'd really like us to keep paying attention to and thinking about, you know, how can we figure that out? Where is there evidence one way or the other? The other really interesting note, we got an email from friend of the podcast, Rochelle. And so here's what she says. I'm just going to quote this briefly. She says, After having lived in the UK for a while, And in particular, after having spent a lot of time in the Cotswolds countryside for work, to me, the Potters now very much read as an upper middle class to upper class Oxfordshire family. They live in a small cottage, but they live in what I read as a desirable countryside village, which are extremely expensive places to have homes here in the UK. And in those areas, often a small cottage has a valuable social cachet associated with it. There is the desirable countryside and the less desirable countryside. I read the Weasleys as coming from farther north countryside, which is more remote. Real estate is cheap and considered less valuable. And if people live there, it's seen less as an act of choice and more a signifier of their lack of mobility or downward mobility. Really interesting stuff there that... I think sort of complicates how we're reading the positions of the different characters. And so as per usual, we always love it when people have perspectives that we lack on the books. And this is one like when we're thinking about the complexities of class and how they actually play out, like our outsider status to UK culture means we miss a lot of these signifiers, right? We've got the theory, but we don't necessarily have the class literacy that comes with actually being part of that culture. And so yeah, I'm really interested in like continuing to ask questions about class and how it's being communicated to us as we keep reading the books. Yeah, wonderful.
0: Similar to questions about class. I have also been thinking about the ages of some of these characters who we encounter because they're not really specified. And I know that this is going to be one of those things where Pottermore has like, or the Harry Potter fandom wiki or whatever has like full on birth years for everyone. uh, Yeah. Like birth years, timelines, death dates, all the works. But I'm thinking more just in terms of like what textual evidence do the books provide? And I'm interested to know how old Vernon Dursley is and how old Petunia is, because it says in that first chapter, when Dudley is only one year old, that Vernon is already the director of Grunnings. And I think that this is important because being the director of a firm... It's a substantial amount of responsibility. And if we are to understand that Vernon Dursley is, say, 25 years old and is the director of this firm, I think that that might also tell us about how it is that he got that position, right? Like, I think we can make some leaps to understand, like why it is that a 25-year-old would be the director of a firm. It's probably because it was in the family, but his last name isn't Grunnings. So I don't know. I feel like similar to the way that we think about the real estate and the different signifiers that that provides for us, we might also think about some of these different markers of how we can further read class into some of these characters. Alternatively, maybe Vernon Dursley is like, 20 years older than Petunia and I also find that to be fascinating and remarkable and would love to think about how his character is explainable based on say a substantial age gap and then what that tells us about Petunia that she finds the ideal partner in somebody who is like the same age as her parents
1: so many questions oh That is really interesting. And again, a thing that's like, let's pay attention Mm -hmm. as we read the next books and just see if they tell us anything else. Mm -hmm. Like, who knows? There might be nothing else in there. And we just need to like fill in the gaps ourselves. But like, once you're paying attention, it's amazing the stuff that you start noticing. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely.
1: Okay, this is a bigger question, but I I think a question that you and I have come back to (laughs) when we talk about this book, which is why... Did this book (laughs) launch a unparalleled publishing success story Mm -hmm. that has dwarfed every other bestseller? Mm -hmm. Like in the publishing world, you don't talk about Harry Potter as an example of anything (laughs) because it is such a fundamentally broken model Mm -hmm. of like how successful a book can be that it's actually not even like indicative of like trends. It it is such a black swan event. Mm-hmm. It is such a unexplainable success. Mm-hmm. And people love to talk about like, you know, the manuscript got rejected so many times mm-hmm. before it got picked up and, you know, obviously now that hindsight is 2020 and people can look at that and be like, oh, those fools for rejecting it. <laughs> but publishers aren't fools. Mm-hmm. They're good and careful readers. It was rejected multiple times for a reason. Mm-hmm. I would venture to say one of those reasons is it's not a great book. <gasps>
0: Listeners all over the world are are unsubscribing from this podcast as You speak, Hannah.
1: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Don't turn on me. It's just we've read it six times in a row. It's got some plot holes. But this is a point. This is an observation many people Mm -hmm. have made, right? We love these books. Mm -hmm. These books are deeply meaningful to us. These Mm -hmm. books are entrenched in our childhoods. And then they become entrenched in our social relationships. And, you know, they, they matter to us deeply. But the degree to which they matter to us Mm -hmm. individually and collectively is hard to explain Mm -hmm. based on what actually happens in this book. Mm -hmm. It's just not that much better than other books, Mm -hmm. really, is the point. Like, lots of books are great. Mm -hmm. So why was this the book that was a brain-breaking
0: success? I think one of the things that this book does really well is brings you into a world where you start out as an outsider and find a place where you belong. We touched on this a little bit in the last episode with Lucia, but also like one of the reasons why this book um, or this world has become so important to the queer fandom is that idea of finally finding that place where you belong. So. I think that my overall theory is that at its core, these books provide us with these tools to imagine that there's a world where we belong. So those of us who Mm -hmm. feel like outsiders, we're all just waiting for our letters to arrive and tell us that we can get into Hogwarts. But on a sort of more like micro level... I think that uh, there are certain instances, and this was something that I was paying attention to this time around in reading, that really ring super true to me in a kind of heavy duty realist sort of way. And the biggest thing is Mm -hmm. Harry's experience trying to get to the platform because... Mm -hmm. That scene in the book involves him like looking at his watch and realizing that time is running out. And I don't know about you, Hannah, but I feel like any time I'm ever going somewhere for the first time, I am drenched in sweat looking at every possible <laughs> clock and, and time telling device Because I don't know where I'm going and I know I'm gonna make a wrong turn and I don't know who to ask for help. And also, I'm afraid of asking people for help because what if they talk to me? And so, this moment where he's like counting down the minutes and he's like, What if they made a mistake? What if Hagrid made a mistake? How come I can't? What if this is all a big joke? What is going on? Maybe this isn't real. I have an owl like it just, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So, I think in terms of that sort of narrative experience, I think that's done really effectively the fact that Harry doesn't have like a smooth and easy trip into the wizarding world kind of makes it feel more real for me yeah yeah
1: yeah that's my
0: thinking how about you
1: I love that the theory that I that I come back to a lot and that I hope we have an opportunity to return to in some other form and give it the time it deserves has less to do with anything within the books themselves and has more to do with the way that the publication of these books aligned with a historical moment in which internet fandom was emerging. Mm -hmm. A sort of nascent culture of online fan production was beginning to coalesce and that through a sort of unpredictable coincidence of timing This became one of the texts that was taken up by that nascent fandom. And that ended up being almost written into the DNA Mm. of internet fandom Mm -hmm. and how um, new forms of community building oriented around a shared text. And so very early on, you get people starting to create sorting quizzes Mm -hmm. and talk about themselves. And it becomes... Deeply embedded for older millennials Mm -hmm. who are part of that early generation of dial up internet users, (laughs) that early generation of dial up internet users, that early generation of online fandoms, that early generation of, you know, of creating these communities. And, you know, when I watched TikTok... Gen Zs love to make fun of millennials for talking about our Hogwarts houses too much. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you doing? But it's made me think about like just how much this is just just baked into our cultural vocabulary Mm -hmm. and how much does it have to do with the fact that these books came out just at the right time Mm -hmm. when a generation was beginning to build these new cultural forms online and this Mm -hmm. is just the vocabulary we drew on to start to form those communities Mm -hmm. and now they're just part of us now
0: Yeah. yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense to me
1: Thank you, witches, for joining us for Episode 6 of Witch, Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryproductions.com or owitchplease.ca or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. Witch, Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry Productions
0: and distributed by ACAST. Special thanks to our endlessly patient producer. Greetings. And to Not Sorry Productions for having us. If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who... Everyone? every Everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me mispronounce your name. And Hannah laugh because she finds it hilarious. For example, thank you to... Ship off, Ollie. (laughs) Ship off, Ollie. Phoenix, 1560. Granger Danger Designs. Hmm. Sydney Slim. Anxious Enby. Theodore Julian. Dria? Dria 92? Dria 92? Alice Kitson? Alice Kitson. Lexon Pods. Ellie Drover, Soph Jars, Judy Purr, mm, Judy, mm, you knew this was gonna <laughs> mess me up. Judy Padrudy, L. Langham 17, Cat Boz, Tessa Gray, Herondale, Moderate Critic, and Rose White, Rose Red.
1: Mm, beautifully done. Those weren't too bad. No. Those, those were, those were okay. Totally manageable. If you want to hear even more from us, head over to patreon.com slash please to check out the many exciting forms of bonus content available to you, including but not limited to unedited audio from the original run, bonus interviews and Q&A episodes.
0: On our next episode, we're beginning our discussion of book two, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. But until then. Later, witches.